Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we do wish you a very uh, happy new year. And uh, I know a lot of us, I'm particularly happy not to see anything of 2022 again. As uh, uh, in Arabic, we say, Hayyallah, let it go. So uh, I can't wait to uh, start the new year, and I hope, I hope you uh, do as well. We're going to continue for the next couple of months looking at the book of Romans. We've been doing this for quite some time now. Dawson and I are going to finish the book together. So next week I'll finish chapter 10. We're going to do te- the first part of 10 today and next week. And Dawson and I will do 11 and 12 and the remaining books together. And uh, I hope that it's been a blessing to you. We often look at the book of Romans and we think, well, this book is just a doctrinal uh, thesis of the Apostle Paul. And it certainly has a lot of doctrine in it, essential doctrine. But we often forget that he's also put it in the context of a letter, a letter to a church a church of mixed people. There were both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And at that time in history, it was very difficult for the Jews and the Gentiles uh, to uh, even be in the same room. That was impossible. We, We don't think that that's possible, but believe me, they couldn't even gather to do what we're doing this morning in the same room. They would be separate. They couldn't eat meals together. Uh, They certainly couldn't uh, have taken the Lord's Supper together. Uh, There were many, many issues in that culture. And the Apostle Paul is writing a letter from his heart to these people, try to help them figure out how to live together and do it in a way that will stun the world, that will stagger the world to know that there are people that can actually transcend the hatred the bitterness, the racism, the vitriol, the classism, whatever the case may be, genderism, talking about male and female, not all the other uh, genders that we're dealing with in our current culture, but just how men and women are to relate. Can they worship together in the same room? They were separated in those days. How do we look at that? Paul's writing these incredibly rich doctrines because they're not just there for you to fill your head with knowledge. They're there so that that knowledge can go down into your bones and then be lived out in your lives. And uh, one of the greatest disappointments of being a pastor is going year after year after year preaching the gospel, and then having people in your congregation who it almost affects zero. Doesn't matter. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, something can happen, and all those hours in church listening and all those Bible studies and all those Monday night theology classes, everything goes out the window and all of a sudden it's all about us and ourself and I have my rights and then this and that and we start going on and on and on. Dawson and myself and Marcos and the session of our church for two decades have tried to pass along 
the idea that you can be different, that this congregation can be different. We don't have to follow the trends of this world. In fact, we're commanded not to follow the trends of the world. We're commanded to be different. And this is what the Apostle Paul's letter is so grand at. It's showing you through chapter after chapter who you are in Jesus Christ and calling you to a life that is substantially different. And very often, it touches your behavior. But it's not all about your behavior. It's about who you are, how you identify yourself. And so let's read from chapter 10, the first 13 verses, and then I'm going to be brief this morning, uh, but I do want to introduce this and get your mind back into Romans and the thought processes that are going on. So it's printed in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, If you do, turn to chapter 10. If you don't own a Bible or you'd like to have one, an extra one maybe, uh, we've got a whole cart full of uh, ESV Bibles. Happy to give you one. So now hear God's word. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, now faith is speaking, listen, what faith says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to the earth, and don't say who will go up who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. That's faith speaking. He's quoting verses from Deuteronomy chapter 27, 28, and 30. We won't get into that too much, but that's what he's doing. In fact, it says the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. That is the message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you will be saved. As the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. 
there's a really profound misunderstanding when it comes to things like faith. What is faith? We've talked about this just to no end. Faith is not some commodity, something that you have. And some people have faith and some people don't have faith. Or some people have lots of faith. Some people don't have much faith. Everybody has faith. Faith is not a commodity. Faith is trust that you are placing in something or someone. And it starts with your alarm clock in the morning. You set it at night and it comes on at night or the next morning and you believe that it will wake you up and all of that. These are faith. You're putting your faith in something and your faith is only as good as that thing, whatever that thing is that you're putting it in. Or a person. And that's what Christianity is saying. Your faith... You can put your faith in anything. In fact, we all do. We all have things that we have put our faith. Could be our education. Could be our physicality. You know, am I strong? Am I healthy? Am I unhealthy? Are my kids in line? Are they behaving themselves? Do I have a good job? Do I have a good uh, education? Whatever the case is, my behavior right. People love to measure themselves by their behavior against other people. You know, I'm better than them. I'm not as good as that one. But uh, I'm doing the best I can. I'm really sincere, whatever. There's a misunderstanding about what faith is. The gospel doesn't have any misunderstanding. The gospel is very plain. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Very simple. Put your faith in Him. Well, I don't have much. doesn't matter how much. little bit. Put a little bit in Him. And then after you become a Christian and you're living your life and the uh, slings and arrows of this world start crashing against you, you're still supposed to put faith in God. You're still supposed to. It's not one time. It's not a one-time thing. It's every day. And if you're a normal human being, a normal Christian, it's multiple times a day. And that's your life. When you join the church, when you get baptized and you say, I'm going to be a Christian, that's what you're signing up for, folks. You're signing up to say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my King. Everything falls under His purview, whether I like it or not. Whether I like it or not. And this is where the Apostle Paul has been taking us. He's showing you deep, he's down deep inside what God has done by making you right with him, self, by making you right. He has a claim to us. And Paul saw his own people, the Jews, and he, he wept for them because they were zealous and they were enthusiastic. They never missed a Bible study. Every time the, the church door was open, uh, Dawson And Marcos had to push them out of the way to unlock the church. Because they're lined up out there, ready to go. I'm going to serve Jesus. And all it takes is a breath, poof, like this, and over they go. And you know that's true. If it hasn't happened to you, you're not a normal human being. We need to talk. It happens to all of us. And Paul saw this happen to his own people, his own race of people. And it grieved him. Why? Because the great project of humanity from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the great project of humanity has been self 
salvation, self-righteousness. And I've seen it at every level. I've even seen it in the church, in our church, in the Presbyterian Church in America. I will save myself by getting all of this theological knowledge and doctrine. Then I will be right with God. And there's not one doctrine in the Bible that will make you right with God. Only Jesus can make you right with God. The doctrines are there. The letter that he's writing is there to undergird who you are so you can face the slings and arrows, the pain and the heartache, the sins that so easily beset us, that hold us down, that crush us, the shame that makes us want to cover and find a fig tree and get its leaves and do something about that nakedness. To find some way to deal with our guilt and our hurt. And human beings have an amazing capacity for self-salvation, even when they know the truth, even when they know the gospel, even when they're saturated in the gospel of the Bible. Look at verse 1 and through 3 here. These first, There's a longing in my heart, a prayer to God, is for the people of Israel to be saved. They have enthusiasm, but it's misdirected. It is misdirected. Zeal. It, it, it's not right what they have. They may have all their doctrines right. They may be absolutely, doctrinally, online. But there's something else wrong. It's down below that level, and the gospel has not touched that. They don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. What is misdirected zeal? He defines it. They refuse to accept God's way, and they cling to their own way, of trying to keep the law. So what have they done? From, from chapter 1 of Romans, the great sin of mankind has been described as this. It's not pride. It's not all these things. It is, re, it is denying the truth of who God is and replacing it with a lie. It is suppressing the truth, replacing it with a lie. And when we're talking about little idols, we're talking about things in everyday life. And it's not just replacing, it's also bringing things into the room where God should stand alone and saying, I need God, but I also need John Calvin. I need God, but I also need to have this and this. And we start adding things. And there's where the danger lies. We suppress the truth, or we refuse to accept God's way, whatever that way may be, about different things. In this particular case, it's how do you even be right with him? How do you even have a relationship with him? And you replace it with a lie. You replace it with something else, or you bring something else in that augments or kind of helps it along. This is like drinking poison, my friends. It will kill you. 
I, I was over visiting with Jeff, our pastor on the east side yesterday for a couple hours, and we were talking about the shape of the church, what is happening to the church. It's not just Presbyterian churches, every church. There is a, a shift that has taken place that people are going to be writing about for the next 50 years. And as your pastor, Dawson feels the same. Our session, we're all on board. Jeff and his session, same thing. All the presbytery, all the churches in our presbytery, same thing. We are going to preach you the gospel and beg you to listen. Take it into your heart. Because hard times are coming. They always do and they always have. And when they come, are we going to stand or are we going to fall? Israel did not stand. And they had a theocratic government and a God-ordained king. And an army that was blessed by God. In fact, he would march in front of them when they went out to battle. And they still refused. Unless we think we're more spiritual than them, the same happens to us. Has happened, is happening, will continue to happen. Misdirected zeal. It's refusing to accept God's way and replacing it with a lie, some other thing. And particularly when it comes to what saves you or what makes you who you are. Not just saves you so you can go to heaven, but your, your identity, your real, the real you. Who is the real you? Not the fake you that comes in on, to church on Sunday morning, but the real you when nobody's watching. That's self-salvation. Finding something that gives you that ultimate identity. And it can even be good things, could be doctrinal things, could be money, could be school, could be any of the good things. can also be evil. Both. What is God's way of salvation? He defines it in in verse 4, and this is perhaps one of the most profound verses in the Bible. I was privileged to study under Dr. Sproul at RTS when he was there, and uh, for years before going there, also to just be saturated in the teaching from Ligonier. And so I cannot tell you how many times, in fact, it's, it's more than you would imagine, how many times R.C. would tell people that you are saved by Christ's obedience his life well-lived and perfect obedience as much as you're saved by the cross and his death on the cross, that they both stand there to help you. And so you must not depend on your good behavior to be contributing to anything. And I don't know how many people even hear that. How many of you just heard me say that? Please lift your hands. Okay, we have a camera back here and we're recording it. Sal... Not here today, but he is recording that. That it's not just Christ's death that saves you, it's his life. His perfect obedience. And that doesn't mean that you don't have to obey. In fact, it it makes obedience absolutely necessary. Radical obedience. To the point of death, I will give my life to obey my king. But it's not going to impress him because you give your life or you sacrifice or you... He's already seen the best. Look what he says in verse 4. It's profound. 
Christ accomplished the purpose, the telos, the goal, the end, the, 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 the whole, everything that the entire Bible had in view, starting with Genesis 3.15 and the serpent and crushing the head of the serpent and the seed of the woman, everything you read in your Bible going forward from chapter 3 on is written with Jesus Christ in view. He's in the windshield. And you're to go there. And feast your eyes upon that glory, that life so well lived for you, as you. And that death so profound that it would cleanse the sins of the world and a thousand worlds besides, John Owen said. One drop of his blood. And you're to gaze at that and let that become you. And then nothing Nothing will hurt you. Nothing can bring you down. Nothing, no one. Yes? That stands. Christ accomplished the purpose for which the law was created. Was the law ever given? Let me ask you. Was the law ever given to make you right with God? Why was the law given? Well, if you read your Bible, the law was given simply to teach you who God was and how you were to relate to a God that's like this, a holy God, a righteous God, a loving and gracious God. And so I've told you, and I'll remind you again, very simple thing to understand. What chapter of your Bible are the Ten Commandments found? Anybody? Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Yeah? Another place in Deuteronomy. But don't worry about that. It's not important. Yes, it is. But What comes before chapter 20? 19. Good math. <laughs> Got your calculator out? Before the law was ever given... Chapter 19, listen, let this soak in. Before the law was given, we complain about, oh God, i got to keep His law, He's a bunch of rules. Before the law was ever given, God speaking to His people, you and I, and those old people in Egypt, you saw what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried them on eagles' wings, and I brought you, to myself. Chapter 19. Now, if you will obey me and keep my commandments, you will be my own special treasure from among all the nations in the world. Do you hear the love and tenderness in this? I, if you don't, think about it. You will be my special treasure. In fact, the original language, it is the a tender endearment that you cannot imagine how God is addressing this bunch of rabble, these sinners, as R.C. used to say, these creatures from the dirt. My special treasure. For all the earth belongs to me, but I've chosen you. You will be my kingdom. Listen, my priests, my holy nation. And then God gave them these instructions. I am the Lord your God 
you will have no other God before me. And so on and so forth. Nine more. Did you hear that? Long before he ever rolled out any commandments for us to follow, he said, I love you. I saved you. I name you my special possession. You are mine. I am yours. We will go through this life together. The land I'm giving you, is give, I'm giving it to you by grace. You're not even going to have to fight for it. I'm going to send bees and wasps and wild animals. They're going to chase the people away. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to provide you a, a land of milk and honey. Not because you obey my commandments, for goodness sakes. 19 comes before 20. Because I love you and care for you. This is what he's saying. And the people of Israel didn't get it. What do you think could happen to us if you don't listen? If I don't listen? If we, as the church of God, we don't listen? We think there's going to be something else that's going to get you across the finish line. And I got to tell you, folks, it just isn't going to happen. Christ accomplished the purpose. The law was there because it told us who God is and how you must behave in order to, inter to interact with this God. And the only person that has ever even come close, in fact, the only person that ever did it perfectly was Jesus. Nobody else. Now, we will take that information and we'll twist it and say, well, if he did all that, then I don't have to do anything. I can just sin all I want. Well, that's called mockery of God's word. It's called presuming on God's grace. And that will end you in hell. Can I get a hearty amen for that? You presume on God's grace, you mock God to his face, and you will end up in hell. So, oh, but I, I confess Jesus with my mouth. I believe he was raised from the dead. Nope. You can do that all day long, folks. Anybody, can we can teach a monkey to say that, which is what God actually did in saving us. Taught a bunch of monkeys to say that. You can say it, but what does it mean to believe it? It believes that that touches every other thing in your life. You can't go along and say, well, you know, this is my reserve spot where I don't let God into this area. Our salvation, our way, God's way of salvation, verse 4, is Christ, Christ alone, by faith. And then he tells us about something impossible. I love this. Look at verse 5. Moses said the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all its commands. True. Jesus was even asked by a lawyer, how must I be saved? Jesus said, keep all the commandments you'll be saved. And the lawyer, smarty pants lawyer, he says, well, I've done that. I've kept all the, all the commandments. And Jesus, because he was smarter than the lawyer, Jesus said, oh, good for you. Sell everything you have and follow me. And what happened to the little lawyer, the smarty pants lawyer? He went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. He hadn't kept the commandments because he couldn't give up his stuff because he really didn't love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amazing. 
You've got to love Jesus, yeah? He knows what he's doing when he talks to people. Impossible. The law should not discourage you. The law should point you to Jesus. And then, only then, when you see the beauty and the glory of this man who fulfilled the law for you, as you, on your behalf, will you then be able to say with a pure heart, I love your law, O Lord. Teach me your ways. Psalm 119, 172 verses of how I love your law. Why? Because it's not going to get me in any favor with you. It's a demonstration of how much I love you. What's better than that? But what kind of good news are we looking for? That is good news. That I'm free from condemnation and I can serve him now with a whole heart. And that obedience also includes robust, radical repentance. He loves repentance and people who run to him as much as he loves your stellar obedience. He loves them both. Yes? He loves them both. Then we see something impossible. These verses are so wonderful. I I won't have time to, to really give it enough attention, but I'll give it what I can right now. Next week we're going to finish this, chapter 10, and you'll see how it all comes together. So he's just giving you something impossible. And the thing in the person's mind is, well, what do I have to do? If it's, if I, I, I know I can't keep all of the law. What do I do? What do I do? And then he says, faith speaks. Chapter, or verse 6. Faith speaks and faith says, don't say in your heart, well, I must have to go up into heaven and bring Christ down. Or, or who will go to the place of the dead and bring Christ to life again? I, what, what am I going to do? Faith is still speaking, and faith says, the message, the message is as close to you as the breath in your lungs. It's in your mouth and in your heart. It's right there. That is the message about faith that we are preaching to you. You don't have to go up to heaven and get Christ to come. You don't have to go into the bottom of the earth and bring him up again. You don't have to do anything. It's right there before you. It is not hard to do. It's on your lips and in your heart. As close as your own heart. Your own breath. Faith does not save you. Do you hear? Faith cannot save you. Christ saves you. And your faith, as meager and as sometimes absent, I I can't even tell you, folks, how many times I have sat in, in my, te- my puddle of tears and said, I don't know if I really believe all this. It's just too good to be true. How can he possibly love someone like me? How? And you look at yourself and you go, how? And these words come to you. It's possible. 
because it's there in your heart. It's the word about faith, faith in Jesus. Not faith in faith. Hear me. Not faith in faith, but faith in Christ. That will save you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me finish with this. This is Dr. William Hendrickson, one of the professors that I, I got to study under his partner, Dr. Kistemaker. Listen to what he says, and I'm going to just finish there, and, and if you all want this quote, you can get it from me later. Here, too, is the truth to be emphasized. The really difficult task is not for us to undertake. The really difficult task is not for us to undertake. It has been accomplished for us by Christ. It is He who came down from heaven, dwelt among us like a tent in a tent. It is He that suffered the agonies of hell for us, that died and was buried and rose again and ascended into heaven. The hard work was accomplished by Him. Therefore, listen well, Christian. Therefore, any attempt on our part to ascend to heaven and to bring Christ down would amount to a most ungracious uh, denial of the reality and the value of Christ's incarnation. Similarly, any attempt to descend into the realm of the dead in order to bring Christ up from the dead would be a disavowal of the genuine character and meaning of Christ's glorious resurrection from the dead and his triumph over the grave. Think about this. This is how I want you to start your new year. Did you make your resolutions? Nobody made a resolution? I have a whole page of them. Half the page has been broken already, by the way, just in case you know. Look, folks, this is who we are to be. People that are filling our lives and our loves with what Jesus loves and what Jesus cares about and how important these things are to Him because He is Lord and has accomplished this for us. We don't need to go up and get Him and make Him come. We don't need to go in the grave and get Him. He's here as close as your breath. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, we thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy that endures forever. Truly, Father, no one is like You in heaven above or on the earth beneath. Who would have loved us this way? I pray that You would help us start this new year, no matter what's been in the past. Help us begin today with a singular devotion and love for you. And when that love flags and fails and stumbles, that we, we, will pick, we will know that you pick us up and bring us back to yourself. That you don't hold your nose, but you love us and care for us. Please, Father, I pray that this year can be a true year of transformation for many of us, for all of us. 
as we pursue our Lord Jesus in the power of His Spirit. Amen.